You're listening to the Opportunity Zones and Private Equity Show. Listen in for news and insights on how Opportunity Zones, private equity funds, and private real estate can help you grow your wealth. Now, here's your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones and Private Equity Show. I'm Jimmy Atkinson. Opportunity Zone fundraising suffered a sharp decline in Q1 of this year. That is according to a recently released report from Novogratic and Company, but OZs are not alone in this fundraising turndown. Uh, Elsewhere, capital markets are freezing up quite a bit with rapidly rising interest rates and the banking crisis and general economic uncertainty all having impact. Joining me today to discuss the current state of capital markets is Nathan Wiggum, founder and president of EN Capital. And Nate joins us today from beautiful San Juan, Puerto Rico. Nate, great to see you. Welcome. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Nate, for our audience of high net worth investors and advisors who may not be familiar with you and EN Capital, can you give us a brief introduction to your firm and what your role is there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Ian Capital is what I would say is a general commercial real estate capital advisory firm. So we do debt and equity placement and capital structuring for really all property types, all parts of the capital stack all over the country. Um, I sit in Puerto Rico. I have an associate that's uh, based in LA, although now he's spent a lot of time in Barcelona. Um, and then I have a couple of partners in Miami. And so, you know, when I say we look at anything, we can really look at anything and all, all property types, all the country. I've got deals I'm working on in California, Oregon, Florida, Texas, um, New York, here in Puerto Rico. So it's really across the map. And I've been, I founded this company in um, 2017. Uh, and it's, it's, I'm the president founder. It's my company. Uh, but I've been doing capital advisory and commercial real estate since 2006. So I've seen, you know, I've gone through all the ups and downs, went through the last uh, down cycle, which, you know, we all got scars and stories from. Um, but I've seen just about every kind of deal you can think of. Yeah. 2006, when you entered, everything was going great. And then it, uh, <laughs> turned not so great just a short while later. It sounds like, uh, yeah, I thought, I thought the business was easy. You just, you just show up and, you know, deals are easy and you make a lot of money. And, you know, I had a couple of great years and learned real quick that, uh, you know, when the market turns down, things change real fast. Yeah, that was, a, that was a tough time to to get started because it gave you a false sense of security and then all of a sudden the rug got pulled out from you. Uh, well, and, and you mentioned uh, you're working on deals all over the country and, and and a couple down there in Puerto Rico as well. I'll point out that you know we have a, a mutual friend in Jose Torres who's working on the Las Palmas deal down there in Puerto Rico. And he just recently presented uh, his Puerto Rico Opportunity Zone Fund to our group at OZ Pitch Day. I, I know you, you know him and, and work with him. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm a partner in that deal. Um, so he's a, a member of our GP through his opportunities on fund, which, um, you know, is great. And I mean, you know, him. he's got an excellent background, private equities and areas for a while. Um, so he adds a lot of value and expertise just in general to our GP team, but he also brings these investment vehicles, one of which is the opportunities on fund, um, which allows our, you know, obviously any option investors to come into our deal and receive that, the option treatment. Uh, which is very meaningful. Then he has a, another investment vehicle called a Puerto Rico Act 185 private equity fund, which is equity fund specific to Puerto Rico that has some unique benefits for people that live here on the island that want to invest in that deal as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah, just uh, wanted to shout out to Jose. Thanks, Jose. Thanks for ho- hopefully you're watching or, or listening. Um, I'll make sure I pass along this episode to you so you can you can you can watch this. Um, 
Well, let's talk about, well, in a minute, I want to talk about what's happening with capital markets, the impact that economic uncertainty, rising interest rates, the banking crisis is having on capital markets. But first, what are capital markets? Nate, maybe you can give us a quick one-on-one crash course on what we Sure. Need. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And the answer is capital markets are really just a general term to describe the uh, of the debt and equity markets that are out in the overall economy that different companies and entities can potentially access and tap for capital uh, when they're trying to you know accomplish something. And in the context of our conversation around commercial real estate, you know that's everything from getting construction financing to build a new property, getting bridge financing to reposition an existing asset, or even just putting a, a term loan on your property. You know, you own a, a, an apartment building; it's stabilized, and you want to go put a long-term mortgage on that. Well, you know, you're going to go to a bank, a CMBS lender, the agencies, etc. But kind of all of you know, the, the, all of those entities that provide capital to the commercial real estate world, we would consider to be, you know, kind of part of that broad capital market. Good. And, and what I do typically, how I kind of fill in the capital markets is I help alternative investment products, largely opportunity zone funds, raise equity from my group of, of high net worth investors and advisors, the audience of this show and and the audience that has opted in with us at our two platforms, Wealth Channel and Opportunity DB. So I'm, I'm filling in a small part of the equity part of that overall capital stack that also includes uh, some debt from time to time as well, depending on on where uh, the project is, which, which phase the project may be in. Uh, what about the impact that the banking crisis is having on capital markets with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, how have you seen capital markets react to those events? Yeah, um, so they're definitely reacting, and you know, it's a reacting as you expect, which is negatively. Um, so we're seeing the you know, overall capital markets and especially the debt markets definitely contract uh, and begin uh, become more conservative as far as what they're willing to do. Um, a large portion of general commercial real estate debt is held by regional banks. And regional banks would are exactly the, the types of banks that we saw in that cloud. Silicon Valley Bank was a very large regional bank, um, and along with Signature Bank, you know, as well. And those types of banks are kind of they're kind of the bread and butter for what I would call I would say middle market term debt and construction debt to a certain extent to the commercial real estate world. So if I, you know, if I, I'm in Los Angeles and I own a shopping center that's worth $30 million, something like that. And I want to go put a term loan on that on that center. Uh, I'm either going to go to one of two places typically. One is the CMBS market, which is you know commercial mortgage-backed securities, which is its own kind of separate thing. Um, or, and it has pros and cons. If I don't want to go the CMBS route, and there's a lot of reasons why I may not, um, then I'm probably going to go to a regional bank. And you know, in a big market like Southern California, you have quite a few regional banks you can go to if you're in a much smaller market, you know, maybe a uh, secondary market or, you know, a city in the Midwest or something, you know, you probably have a, a small handful of regional banks you can go to. Um, but overall, the regional banks are kind of a very common source of capital for that type of middle market term debt. And that is definitely contracting. And, and again, some, when markets are good, um, regional banks tend to be pretty active on the construction lending side. 
But when the market goes into a downturn, they tend to just do no none of that type of lending. And that's what we saw you know, through the financial crisis. And that's what we're starting to see now. So a lot of the bigger regional banks, like say Bank of the Ozarks, uh, is a good example that was very active in construction and a lot of markets. You know, they're really paring back. And, and we're seeing a lot of other banks doing the same thing. Yeah, uh, there's there's a lot of fear out there. And I think a lot of these banks are fleeing to safety. And and the the downside of that is we get uh, all, uh, the cost of capital has gone way up and and the access to uh, to to debt has has collapsed. Um, what about rapidly? Well, to, rising- to be clear, there's there there's still a lot of debt sources out there. We're we're not in say 2009 when there was virtually nothing. I mean, no one had any liquidity. You know, you couldn't get a loan, say a construction loan for anything. Pretty much, I don't care if you had a billion dollar balance sheet from like 2009 to maybe 2011, 2012. There just no one was doing that. Um, today, there's still a lot of private funds and groups that are active. It's just that we, we are seeing an overall contraction in the market. And we're certainly seeing it pretty strongly in that in that regional bank world. And I think we're going to see more of that because regulators are, are I think, really putting the squeeze on those banks. Um, but there are still a lot of other options that are available. So I, I want to be clear, capital markets are contracting, but there is still capital that's available for good deals and good sponsors uh, at a cost of, of capital that makes sense. Sure, sure. Um Rapidly rising interest rates also has had a pretty big impact. We were in a very low interest rate environment for what, 12 or 13 years or so before interest rates started ticking up. The Fed started increasing interest rates. Uh, uh, when was that? About uh, nine months or so ago, I guess, middle of last year. About a year ago. Frankly, yeah. yeah, about a year ago. Okay. Um, what, what, what impact has that had? Uh, the cost of debt has increased. Um, has it made the cost of equity by comparison look a little bit more affordable? Um, so it is absolutely pushed up the cost of debt. I mean, so far, I think today's at like 4.8, you know, it was 25 bips for forever. Yeah. Right. And so that, that's a monster increase. I mean, this, I, I think this is the fastest fed rate, rate hike in history ever. Uh, it's not the fastest, it's certainly one of them. Um, and so that has really kind of flipped a lot of things on, on their head. Um, I mean, that's the reason that Silicon Valley Bank imploded, which is a whole other discussion about how they were managing their assets and their balance sheet. Um, but in the commercial real estate world, absolutely. So your your average cost of a construction loan today, I mean, even from, you know, so most banks are doing construction debt. There's, there's a handful that still are, but they're pricing, you know, prime plus one and a half, prime plus two, prime's at 8% today. So, I mean, that's a 10% loan from a bank. Which most people, uh, you know, we we just haven't seen that for like twenty years, and it's definitely making you know obviously you got to underwrite that from the its expense into your project cost, and that increases your cost basis, which is going to lower your overall returns. Because we're not seeing, you know, at the same time we're not seeing a huge increase on the revenue side, you know, from from rents or, or anything like that. Um, so certainly putting the squeeze on some deals, and you know, I think there was just a lot of deals getting done over the last 10, 15 years that I wouldn't necessarily say were fundamentally sound relative to the dynamics of the local market. And we're really just driven by the fact that capital was so cheap and so readily available. And, you know, examples of that would be um, there is a lot of deals that were done in secondary called Sunbelt markets. And I'm talking like, you know, Phoenix, certain parts of Texas, et cetera. Where in and I'm talking about multifamily repositioning deals, where 
people were underwriting exit caps, you know, for that type of de deal at Southern California exit caps, like 4%, right? And, and using really high leverage floating rate debt to fund those transactions. And obviously that cost of debt has gone substantially. And a lot of those deals just don't make sense anymore. And so they could, I, they I could get away with it. They could get away with it up to a year or so ago because the cost of capital was so cheap, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you had a, you had a really big margin of error because yep. money was so cheap, and you could probably you know if you ran into some trouble, you'd have refinance options and from other lenders and other things like that. Um, those are kind of all going away, and so I, I think there's a, a lot of deals in, in those in those markets that were probably heavily over leveraged. Um, that now are are going to be seeing a pretty good amount of distress this year. And I also think there's, there's a lot of lenders on the private debt side, and I, I won't name anybody, but definitely have a few key ones in mind um, that I know are being very aggressive. And I'll bet, I, I would bet a lot of money that a lot of those lenders have loans in their balance sheets that they would really like to get rid of. Sure. And I think that creates a big opportunity for people with capital I want to talk about that with you in a moment. That's where we're going with this episode is the the potential opportunity that's out there for the taking for high net worth investors and and other uh, family offices and advisors, other folks who may have access to capital. Uh, but first, what about uh, I want to talk about the the capital stack in general for an average type of commercial real estate project. I guess have you seen a shift in uh, debt to equity ratios recently? You know, you may you may have in the past, been able to put more debt, more leverage into a deal? Has has that come down recently because of yeah. the cost of debt rising so much? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we we are seeing, you know, the lenders are still active in the marketplace are definitely being more conservative on leverage. That's both just because uh, kind of two reasons. One is they just fundamentally want to be in a lower leverage position given concerns about the market. And two, it, it is because you have the higher cost of debt. You know, there's there's only a certain amount of debt burden or debt load that you know a deal is going to be able to support at the end of the day, and so you have to you know when you're doing when you're talking about bridge or construction debt or anything that's transitional, um, that lender the only thing they really care about and think really hard about when they're analyzing loan is how do I get paid off, and getting paid off is usually either one of two scenarios. First one is uh, sponsor builds the project and sells it that pays me off. Or what's more common is sponsor builds it, he wants to hold it, and he's going to refinance me out with conventional debt. And that debt's going to come from a you know, regional bank, an agency, if it's say a multifamily property, or you know potentially a CNBS lender. Um, and so they are going to underwrite to that takeout. And so they're going to look at the deal and say, okay, once the asset's stabilized, you know, given these, you know, the higher cost of capital world that we're in now at a higher interest rate, you know, loan amortizing on a conservative schedule. That this deal will support a term loan of X dollars at some minimum amount of debt coverage that we think is reasonable. And we are certainly not going to provide any kind of bridge of construction loan that is greater than that. In fact, we want some margin of error. So we might say, look, the maximum loan we're willing to provide this, on this property is maybe 10% or some you know margin below what we think that takeout financing is. And so given all that, I mean, that, that kind of methodology has just put most lenders in a position where they're definitely, you know, contracting, you know, leverage compared to where they were here. Got it. Um, let's take a look at multifamily uh, for for a moment, because that's the seems to be the the biggest asset class in real estate. W what was typical a year ago 
for the amount of leverage you might have on a multifamily deal and 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 how has that changed to today was it was it like 60 65% could be typical and now it's oh you have lenders being real aggressive i mean we have we have groups we go to that would give us you know 80% of cost financing on multifamily oh, really? construction um yeah i mean we and you could you could layer sub debt on that so you know, we had groups going up 80% we have we have a group it's a, a, one of the largest mortgage groups in the country we know very well they were they had a program where they were saying look we'll provide 90% of your entire project cost as a debt instrument and, and that and had, that gets some participation. So they give you, you know, basically 90% at a pretty good interest rate on as a debt piece. And then I think it was something like you give them 25% of the equity off the back of the deal and yeah. uh, you're good to go. So those programs have definitely, you know, either gone away or, or come down um, for ground up multifamily or, Called value add multifamily. I think a reasonable debt assumption today is probably around seventy percent of cost. Um, you might still be able to push that a little bit, but that's that's what I would be underwriting to. Um, and there are still some options for layering in sub debt, which is going to be measure preferred equity or even pace in certain markets, so you can achieve higher leverage. But you still have to go through that same methodology I described of uh, underwriting to what that takeout financing is, and that takeout financing has to underwrite to not only repay the senior but any sub debt that's in there as well. So you're still kind of constrained by what the overall cost of, of capital across your entire debt stack would be between your senior and junior lenders. Good to know. That's a little bit higher than, than I had thought, actually. So that's, that's, that's good to know. Um, you mentioned pace. We, we've talked about pace, I think maybe uh, once or twice on this podcast in the past. There's some OZ deals that I've, that I've spoken with that are doing mm-hmm. some pace financing. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I actually used to be a pace lender before I founded Ian Capital. I, I ran business development for a pace lender out of San Francisco for about a year and a half. Um, and yeah, pace is, is a really interesting, unique product. Um, the, the acronym stands for property assessed clean energy. And the reason for that is because it was originally created in 2008 at Berkeley as a way to finance community solar projects. Um, it since has grown beyond that. Um, and and pay, what pace is, is a legal framework that is established by state statute, and I think 39 or 40 states to date have it, that allows a private market lender to lend against real property, but secure their interest in that property, not through a traditional mortgage, but through a voluntary special property tax assessment. And the loan is actually repaid as a line item on the property tax bill. This has a lot of advantages to the, the property owner or borrower. Um, one is it, it kind of it comes in as a tranche of capital in your capital stack. Typically, pace maxes out at 25 or 30% of value or cost, um, but it comes in tandem with your senior lender. But because pace is repaid through the property tax bill, it's actually senior to the senior. We call it super senior. And so, because if you don't pay your property taxes, you can go to tax them, right? And that's senior to everybody. Um, and so, because of that, the pace lender can provide debt at a very low cost, even relative to what your senior lenders are charging. And so when you combine you know, pace to your, to your debt stack, you're typically adding leverage and, and reducing your overall cost of capital. So borrowers tend to really like it. Um, the trade-off is that because you're doing it through this very unique structure, the pace funds need to be used to fund building improvements that serve the public good. And started with energy, so anything that is energy efficient, uh, on-site renewable generation, putting in a solar system or something like that, all those things are definitely pace eligible, but it's kind of grown beyond that. So for example, in California, seismic improvements are pace eligible. In Florida, hurricane proofing is pace eligible. Um, I've been working hard to try to bring pace here to Puerto Rico because uh, there's a, a lot of applications 
uh, for Pace here beyond the stuff I just described. So it's a really unique product. I think there's a lot of benefit to it, um, but it can be very tricky with how it interacts with the senior lender and you need to have a senior lender that um, is Pace friendly. Um, there's over the last few years, there's been some debt funds that have come to market that offer both senior and Pace financing through a, a single fund. Um, I think if you wanted to explore Pace, that would really be your best option. Because like when I was originating Pace loans, the biggest challenge we had, and this was also 2016, so this was a really new product and no one, no one even heard of it. Um, but getting senior lenders at that time comfortable with it and being willing to actually sign an acknowledgement, which allowed us to fund, um, was was really challenging. So if you're going to an entity today that uh, you know can give you can provide both the senior and Pace, you know, from a single shop then you don't have that issue and you can get things done much more efficiently. That's great. I, I didn't mean to derail the conversation too much. I just think that's interesting. We, yeah, we haven't had an episode that's covered pace in detail. I might have to have you back on the show because I'm sure. sure we could probably spend 30, 45, 60 minutes even talking just about pace financing. It's a fascinating topic. Uh, we, should, we should do a deep dive yep. at some point down the road, but we'll leave it uh, at that for today. Getting back to our uh, main discussion though on the state of capital markets, some of the turmoil, uh, the freezing up uh, and distressed debt you mentioned a few minutes ago, all of this potentially is leading to an opportunity for high net worth investors or other sources of capital. What is the opportunity that is posed here? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and, and I'll, I'll add something to that, which is something like one third of all commercial real estate debt is floating rate debt. And floating rate is, of course, exactly what it sounds right. Your rate's not fixed, it floats with the market. And floating rate debt is so ubiquitous in the industry because we had low interest rates for so long, right? I could go out, I have a multifamily portfolio, I can go get a you know, long-term amortizing floating rate loan with probably some long period of, of interest only, so I'm not even paying down principal. Uh, like let's say I did a 10-year loan to five years IO. Well, that you know just boosted the cash flow off my portfolio tremendously, which was a you know created a lot of um, wealth and and uh, cash to distribute to investors for those types of groups. Now, since interest rates have gone up so substantially over the last year, any floating rate debt that was did not have some kind of a interest rate hedge instrument, which could be a credit default swap or an interest rate swap or um, or an interest rate cap, something that you acquire typically when you originate your loan. Well, all those loans now, you know, you might have had a loan that had a 4% coupon on it, and now you're paying 8.5%. And, you know, that unless your, uh, pro unless your properties, your portfolios were just throwing off tremendous amounts of cash, it's quite likely that you're either underwater or you're barely breaking even, or you might not even be satisfying, you know, the debt coverage covenants of your loan. And, you know, you could be sitting in technical default. So, you know, what all, all that means is that um, this rapid rise of interest rates is directly impacting, you know, basically one third of the debt that's out there for the overall you know, US commercial real estate market. And so we're going to see, and we're actually starting, starting to see a lot of, you know, potentially distressed deals and, and distressed loans. Um, but that translates directly into an opportunity. So, you know, any anyone who is uh, well positioned to have two things. First, the most important one is access to deal flow. And access to deal flow means you have relationships with the lenders and entities that are holding these loans on their balance sheet. Um, you know, most lenders, I'm saying most, really no lender is going to be advertising to the market 
that, hey, we got a bunch of bad loans, you know, that we're willing to sell at a discount just to get rid of them. You should give us a call. No one's going to say that, right? So you need to have relationships and contacts with these groups that you know, trust you and are willing to, you know, let you know. I mean, we, we're starting to have groups reach out to us saying, hey, you know, maybe, maybe we should talk about a couple of deals that we're looking at. Um, and um, so again, having access, access to deal flow, super important and challenging. And then secondly, you need capital. So a lot of these opportunities are very quick moving. It could be something like, hey, if you can acquire this node at a, you know, very quickly from us, because we were looking at increase our liquidity as a lender, um, you know, we'll sell it to you at a pretty substantial discount. That discount might be 10%, 20%, 40%, you know, half. It could be, it just depends on the deal and how, how distressed the situation is and how in need of liquidity that lender is. Um, and so if you're in that again, position to have access to have those conversations, but also have dry powder that's that can be deployed relatively quickly, you're going to do very well. And in the last cycle, uh, there's a lot of groups probably that say did say from 11, 2011 through like 2013, 14, that bought a lot of distressed paper at really substantial discounts, and they created a tremendous amount of wealth for themselves. And, and I think this cycle is going to be uh, very similar, potentially larger, because this again, this impact of increasing rates has been so so quick and so dramatic, um, and also I think this cycle is going to move a lot more quickly than the last one. There, there's still a lot of liquidity in the system, and and we're just in, we're just in an environment uh, where business just seems to be you know the pace of uh, deal flow in general has just accelerated so quickly, you know, probably due to technology and other factors. But things are just moving fast. Well, I've got a few follow-up questions for you. It sounds like a great opportunity if you're able to take advantage of it. If I'm a high net worth investor or a family office or an RIA um, that has a lot of dry powder sitting around, but maybe I maybe I'm not quite sure where to turn. I, I don't know who to talk to. What's what's the best way I can take advantage of this opportunity? Who should I who should I reach out to 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 get access to deal flow? Yeah. Um, so that's a really good question. And I would say um Unless you are an expert in loan workouts, restructuring, you know, doing these types of deals, I, I wouldn't try and do them yourself because they're, they're, they can be relatively complicated. Um, and depending on what state you're in, what jurisdiction, what the foreclosure process is like, you know, is it judicial, non-judicial, et cetera, um, it, can be, it can be complicated. So what I would recommend is you'd want to find a, uh, you know, a platform that is that has all of that expertise and a lot of experience you know, in house through you know their team and sponsorship, and potentially invest you know through a group like that. Because again, you need access to deal flow, and you know you need to be working with a group that that has that, uh, and they need to know how to do these deals. And so you do, you want to be working with a group that you know has you know deep expertise on that front. So for us, we we actually have a um, partnership with a, a platform exactly like that. Uh, based in Miami, um, the sponsor has, you know, he was in the workout group at a, a local bank in Miami, I think for like 11 or 12 years, ran a billion dollars to their portfolio in the last down cycle, restructuring his workouts, REOs, et cetera, um, and now has his own platform, these sponsors. And so we were working very closely with him, both on originating these deals through, through our network. Uh, and so we have a lot of interesting deals we're working on. For example, we're looking at acquiring a $50 million note on a distressed um, kind of development in New York City. Uh, we're looking at a, a note on a hotel in Florida, uh, among a bunch of other things. 
Um, and then we're also, uh, you know, bringing capital to this group, you know, basically at, at the fund level. But that's that's what I would recommend. You want to identify whether it's a group like that or someone else. But, you know, I, I think the the best near-term opportunity to invest in commercial real estate over the next call it 18 to 24 months is going to be on the distressed side, primarily distressed debt, maybe on, in certain cases at the distressed asset level side. Uh, but again, uh, unless you are an expert distressed note investor, you should be investing in a fund or you know through a platform, maybe on a deal by deal basis, where they have that expertise. Really good insights, great advice there, Nate. Uh, hope uh, hope my listeners and, and viewers were, were listening to that, and <laughs> they can they can reach out to uh, you or or if they know anyone with that type of platform, they can start taking advantage of this opportunity potentially uh, as it springs up over the next. Uh, what you said about 12, 18 months or so, you think a lot of distressed paper will yeah. be available? I, th- I think in the second half, so we're starting to see deals now, but I okay. think the real kind of deluge of deals uh, is coming that wave because uh, there, there is a big wave of um, maturities on short-term floating rate bridge debt that, that is coming towards the end of this year and into next year. That's when I think we're going to kind of see, you know, a lot of those deals coming down the pipe. Um, but like I mentioned earlier, I think the wave is going to, I think it's going to be a, fast moving tall wave is going to go pretty quickly. So you got to be you know, in the right position with capital to surf that wave. And if you're able to do that, you're going to do really, really well. Um, if you're not in that position, you're going to miss it. Right on. Well said. Well, let's shift gears uh, for a little bit here as we kind of wind down our conversation, wind down this episode. Uh, I mentioned at the top, you're in San Juan. You, you've lived in Puerto Rico for the last uh, several years, I think now. what's uh, What is the real estate market like down there in Puerto Rico? Yeah, Puerto Rico is interesting. Uh, the market is still quite strong. Um, Puerto Rico is a little, I mean, it's a U.S. territory, of course, but it's a little insulated from the U.S. and that our, our capital market here is kind of insulated to Puerto Rico to a certain extent. Um, and there's, there's good and bad things that come with that. Um, bad thing is, we, we only I say we have three and a half banks and Banco Popular is more than half the market. And we got two others. And then there is a fourth bank that's relatively small, but it's actually and it would probably run very quickly over the next few years. Um, but those are really your only options for any kind of bank debt. Um, there's a few private money debt funds here um, that are very, very sophisticated, very good. And, and we know them well and are doing deals with them. But for the size of the market, there should probably be something like 10 or 15. Um, and so you know, the, the capital markets here are constrained. But what that, what that means today is that this increase in interest rates isn't really affecting the market here that much because because it was such a credit constrained market, the cost of debt was always higher here than it was in the mainland. So even a year ago, you know, a, a construction loan from a bank was probably eight percent, maybe seven and a half. Uh, today, that's you know, it's that nine and a half percent over prime. So yes, it's gone up a little bit, but we we haven't felt the full brunt of you know four hundred and fifty bips of increase. We've seen we we've kind of felt locally here more. I would say something like two to two fifty. So that hasn't really cooled the market off. Um, and on top of that, because Puerto Rico was in uh, a depression for so long and property values here got so depressed relative to where they should be, um, that the if you're doing any kind of a you know a development project here, or repositioning, you know, buying an asset to convert it to a hotel or maybe something small, I'm you know, buying a, a, a four unit, I'm gonna turn it to Airbnbs, whatever that is, right? Your yield on cost that you're looking at here just Kind of by default because of where your acquisition cost is going to be was probably already north of 10 percent maybe 15 maybe 20 percent and so given that 
the the deals you're going to do here can handle just overall a much higher debt burden than a lot of stuff you would see in the mainland. So um, that's a long way of saying, I mean, the market is still very good. We're actively doing deals here. As I mentioned, I'm a, I'm a partner in a, that development project that that Jose is a partner in, uh, and we have other deals that, that we're working on here. So this is actually, so I said earlier, you know, I think the best place to invest in commercial real estate over the next year and a half or so is going to be on the distressed debt side. And I think that's, that's very much true, really all over the mainland U.S. Here, I still think there's a lot of a lot of interesting opportunities here to, you know, for hospitality, industrial, housing, et cetera, uh, that still make a lot of sense. Well, that's great. Uh, Nate, it's been fascinating catching up with you, talking with you. Uh, really appreciate your insights into the capital market space and the commercial real estate space as well. Um, before we go, just to zoom out, wanted to get your thoughts on what do you think are some of the most powerful trends that you see playing out over the next few years across the commercial real estate industry from a global macro perspective? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, and so, and there's a lot of ways to answer that. The one that I'm personally really interested in and very bullish on is all of this activity of uh, manufacturing coming back to North America from China. And we're seeing a tremendous amount of activity on that front. Um, at all levels of the, of the supply chain, you know, and, and products. So obviously you have everything that's going on with um, chip manufacturing through the CHIPS Act, um, but a lot of other things as well. And I actually spend a lot of time in Mexico because my wife's from Mexico. So we spend usually about four or five months out of the year there. So I see kind of what's going on there. Um, and I think that the Northern Mexico, call it Texas Triangle area, and then kind of the U.S. You know, Southwest um, is going to do phenomenally well over the next 10 or 20 years as most of those supply chains and manufacturing activity you know leaves china comes back to the us and anything that is not so sophisticated that has to be manufactured in the us is going to get manufactured uh, probably in northern mexico mm-hmm. and so i think that's going to create a lot of uh industrial real estate opportunity you know on both sides of the border and i'm, I'm interested in, in you know, looking at both sides um in, in texas i think you know all your warehousing distribution activities or types of property types are going to do very, very well. I think demand is going to just be sky high for a really long time. And then in, in Mexico, I think, you know, if you're willing to, you know, do a deal in Mexico to, to get a higher yield, which you can, um, I think there's there's really interesting opportunities on, say, the build to suit side or just general industrial that's going to be leased to U.S. and Canadian companies. In fact, I'm looking at a deal right now in, in Canetro, uh with a, a local developer who's looking to build about 400,000 square feet and the, and the target tenants will mostly be U.S. and Canadian firms and you have dollar denominated leases. So you're not even taking currency risk. But, you know, if you're going to just, you know, another country like that, you're going to command a higher you know yield on cost than you would in the U.S., but you'd have comp, you know, very good credit on the tenant side. So I, th- I think all those opportunities are really interesting and we're just going to see a lot more of those over time. Great thoughts, Nate. Hey, thanks again for sharing all of your insights today. Uh, before I let you go, can you tell our audience of high net worth investors and advisors where they can go to learn more about you and EN Capital? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, website, encapital.com. You know, it's funny, I, 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 when I created the firm, I called it EN Capital. Uh, but now that I'm in Puerto Rico, I, I'm thinking I should call it Incapital, which was <laughs> totally unattended, but I think works. Um, but yeah, you go to my website, encapital.com, uh, or you can find me on LinkedIn. I've got like 20 something thousand LinkedIn connections. So you just punch in my name and I'm going to pop up pretty quick. He's a well-connected man. 
ladies and gentlemen. We'll be sure to link to his website, encapital.com, and his LinkedIn as well on our show notes for today's episode, which you'll be able to find, as always, on our website at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. Please also be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Nate, thanks again so much for joining me today. Really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks a bunch. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.